We are in a series right now in the book of 1 Timothy, uh, which is one of the uh, letters of the New Testament. If you have a Bible or a phone app and want to turn there, please feel free to do that. But all of the passage will be on screen in uh, just a minute. Uh, but to kind of catch you guys up, we're actually kind of approaching the end of the, ser- uh, end of the book. We're going to wrap up in a few weeks. We're in chapter, the end of chapter 5 today. Um, but this is one of the three pastoral letters of the New Testament, as most of you um, are well aware of by now, where Paul... Uh, the apostle, the guy who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, is writing to a couple of pastors, in this case Timothy, uh, to kind of just talk about pastorship, and to talk about life, or as he says in chapter 3, behavior in the church, what gatherings should look like, uh, what sort of life as a Christian in community and friendship with others should look like. Um, but a lot of this is written to pastors, and so we've been talking to pastors, allowing the letter to speak uh, to the pastors among us, and the pastor, pastors who will pastor someday here or elsewhere among us. Um, but also to all of us as a church, because again, as we've been saying, Jesus is our chief overseer, the Bible says, the chief elder, our chief pastor. Um, and so we're looking for him in this letter as well. It's ultimately a letter from God to us. It's a love letter, uh, even though it's very heavy on instruction uh, in some of the sections. And today will be a good example of that, heavy on instruction. Uh, basically, you could kind of take today's passage and put it into a bylaws of a church, which we've kind of done in some ways here, and I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, but there's also a lot of rich theology in here as well. Uh, Jesus is here, even though not readily uh, always apparent, um, he, he is certainly here, and so we'll, we'll talk about that. I uh, did want to say, though, too, I mentioned these three words a second ago. Um, we have three words in the New Testament that talk about this kind of highest level of spiritual authority or leadership in a church. Uh, we think of pastors, of course, as kind of the primary one, which is one of them. Uh, pastor, overseer, or sometimes bishop, it's translated bishop, uh, episkopos, the Greek word for that. Uh, the third term is elder. So pastor, elder, and overseer. Uh, they're all basically synonymous. They are different Greek words, so that's why we're, they're translated differently in English in our Bibles, uh, but they're used interchangeably a lot in different contexts, at least two of them. Sometimes all three are even used uh, in, uh, in an interchangeable kind of way. So uh, just want, not, want you guys to get too hung up on that. Uh, today we'll talk about elders, but basically he means pastors here. Um, and by elders, not old people necessarily, though you can be old and be a pastor. That's great. Uh, that, that's needed. Um, but he means people in a fatherly role. So those who are in a fatherly, have, who have spiritual authority, but in a fatherly role in the church and how they care for and die for uh, the community of faith. So um, Last week, we looked at caring for widows. We're in this section now where Paul is, he's talked a lot about the gospel. He's encouraged Timothy as a pastor in his own faith, and um, he's talked a lot about theology and about Jesus. But he's also talking now about some practical matters. Last week, he talked about caring for the widows in the church, for those who are helpless, maybe those without, um, without friends, uh, husbands, friends, uh, people who are um, in need of care. And that day, to be a widow was to be in a very helpless spot. Uh, unlike today as much, uh, but we talked about kind of that contextually. This week we're going to talk about caring for elders. So he's going to kind of switch gears uh, and talk about, he's going to talk to Timothy as a pastor about pastors and about caring for them in different ways. Not just caring, but kind of identifying them as well in different things. So let's read all this uh, to start, verse 17 and following. We'll read it in full here to begin, and we'll, we'll come back to the start. All right, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 
In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little, wa- little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Okay, so um, as I was saying a second ago, let's start with um, this passage kind of on an instructional level. So there's a lot here. I think that this passage is kind of like Paul uh, giving some rapid-fire encouragement here for us, maybe especially for pastors. Um, again, this is, a, this is a section really in a lot of ways for pastors, about pastors, but since we're all uh, at least led by pastors and, and know pastors and are befriended uh, pastors, uh, we should care about these things in terms of church structural issues and, and governance, things like that. Uh, they're really for all of us. So um, let's start with verse 17. So he says, uh, if a pastor is doing his job well, he should be worthy of, quote, double honor. That's kind of an ambiguous phrase, but most people think that this refers to their salary, uh, which means, so basically he's saying, pay elders fairly but generously, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I think this, what he's saying here is preaching is hard work, uh, hence the word labor. Um, It's taxing, it's tiring. It's sometimes a lightning rod for criticism, and so... um, it's not fun all the time. Uh, comes with high responsibility. Uh, the, the list goes on. But all, the, all those kind of hang off the idea of preaching uh, not being an easy thing. It takes blood, sweat, and tears, uh, so to speak. So um, the scripture passages he quotes here are, um, are interesting. One is from the Old Testament, the one about the ox. And one is actually the words of Jesus. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Um, And both of them refer to how it's okay, even good, for the elder or the pastor to glean from the work of the ministry itself. So the idea with the ox especially is is that as a pastor treads out the grain of good gospel ministry and benefits others in the church with it, some of the work comes back to benefit him as well in financial terms. Um, And so I I would say one of the big practical sides to this that benefits the greater church um, is that the preaching pastor is not distracted if he's paid well. He's not distracted with poverty and, or he's not distracted with like a, a second job. Uh, but can, he can go headlong into caring for the church through Bible teaching, which again uh, is his main job. Uh, should be number one in his job description if, that's, if he's a preaching pastor, a teaching pastor. Um, but he can go headlong into this, which again benefits the whole uh, church. So a church should have some self-interest here in a way and should want this. Um, I heard another pastor say a long time ago that what we don't want to do to like a pastor in training, a pastor who, or a guy who wants to be a pastor maybe, or he's in seminary and maybe looking for work, um, what we don't want to say is, is give, we, want to give him, we don't want to give him two choices and say, um, you can either be a pastor or your family can greatly suffer. Like, which do you want? You know, like we don't want, that's unfair. Um, and so, I, I, but that happens sometimes. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to give them a choice between um, your wife and your kids greatly suffering because you're paid dirt, or you can be a pastor. Which, like, which is it? Uh, you want to follow God or not, right? Or over-spiritualize it and make them feel bad about, about saying, actually, no, I can't do that. I can't, I can't take that job and not make, um, not make money and support my family. So 
Um, I think there's wisdom in that. So now I'm not going to go into this too much more today because it's, I mean, the subject matter is loaded and this is kind of a pithy thing anyway here for Paul. But if you are interested in, in, ta- in talking to some of our staff, members of our governance team, which deal with this uh, regularly, or me, about how we pay pastors, how that process goes, what the Bible says about this elsewhere, um, just please let us know. All right? That's, that's the first thing there is Paul cares about pastors being cared for um, physically. All right, verse 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder if it's just one person doing the accusing, especially, or essentially. Do not admit a charge against an elder, an accusation, if it's just one person in the church doing the accusing. So obviously here Paul is saying elders or pastors take criticism. It's very common. Um, and, and so th- this instruction helps to prevent a rogue person from seeking to cause strife or to get a pastor fired in a church with unsubstantiated accusation. That's basically, it's a very practical thing here, but that's, uh, he, Paul's likely seen this happen or almost happen, and so he's writing to this young pastor in training, Timothy, remember, remaining behind in Ephesus, leading up a new church here in this large uh, metropolitan city, and saying this is important. It's one way to care for elders is don't be quick to listen to the accusation of a disgruntled church member if it's just one person. Now, that doesn't mean that a lone person's concerns, if brought to the other elders of the church, would be ignored necessarily either. But in general, Paul is telling Timothy here that this is part of how you care for and protect an elder who might have a target on his back from non-Christians and Christians alike. More on that uh, term and phrase later because later, there's a lot more to that. Um, so third here, our third kind of section, uh, Paul says in verse 20, if an elder persists in sin, so kind of the other side of the coin here, if an elder sins, if he persists in sin, publicly rebuke him. Um, if, if there's need for this, uh, disqualify him uh, for the role, bring it before the church so the church might know and might pray and might, quote, stand in fear. I'm summarizing here. But basically that's kind of the point. So this is what, chur- what churches... Um, often called church discipline. If some of you heard that phrase before, uh, this being a subset of church discipline towards pastors if they persist unrepentantly in a disqualifying sin. The point is not ostracism or punishment or embarrassment, but that the church might be protected, the gospel taken seriously, and the elder be set as an example for all of us. Uh, that is, a sinner underneath the grace of God. The only thing keeping us in the faith uh, being uh, the grace of God. So um, another's, another person's fall, then, isn't something to grade ourselves against, but to see ourselves in. Uh, so we might cast ourselves upon the rock of ages, Jesus Christ afresh, and renew our faith in him. Um, so, so I would say, we say here uh, with our perspective on this, the goal to church discipline being restoration to Jesus. Not moral perfection, but restoration to Jesus. For the pastor, um, or the, the sinning church member, if it goes into those, uh, onto that level, which this is not talking about, this is about pastors, but if it does, um, the goal is not moral perfection, but all of us, as we see ourselves in that person, might be led back to repentance and to faith in Christ. Um, now, I, I will say, with, as with the issue of paying pastors from a second ago, uh, this topic of church discipline is also a major, is a much larger subject matter that could benefit from some elaboration. Jesus talks about it, uh, the Apostle Paul here talks about it elsewhere in others of his letters as well. 
uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, Jesus talks about it. Um, in another context with, greater, with more time, we would talk more. Uh, so let me just say, if you want to know more about it, some of you maybe have seen this done poorly and unhealthily, and so it's kind of a, a lingering concern for you as to how churches go about this. Others of you have seen this done well and tactfully, even though it's never fun to do, you've seen it done well. Some of you have never even heard of this. I, I realize that, that all, all of you are, are in the room. So we really would love to talk to you more about it. Um, we could also point you to our bylaws because this is such an important thing that we put it in our bylaws. So there's clarity on it for how it's going to happen if and when it does have to happen um, if a pastor falls um, on that level. Uh, and so we want clarity on that and uh, for all of our members to be on board and fully aligned. Um, and why, why I would say, too, it's a sign of health. Uh, most churches would say, uh, it, essentially, that it's a sign of health for a church to practice this. Again, tactfully and healthily, yes, uh, it can be done poorly, but to do it well is a sign of church health because you're taking the gospel seriously. You're actually believing someone is alive in Christ. You're believing the tomb is empty. You're believing that all of this is real. All of it's real. And leadership in a church, if, if a man is called to resemble Christ to a community, that role is very important as well, uh, too. And uh, so, you know, that's all a part of it. But it's a sign of health to embrace it rather than to neglect it. Um, but if any of that's more of, of interest to you, again, we're, we're here. We'd love to, uh, to talk more. Last piece to the instructional side of this is from verse 22, also 24, when he talks about uh, raising up new pastors from within the church. Okay, so he says, uh, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. That means in the identification of a new pastor, nor take part in the sins of others. Uh, again, he's talking about pastors here. Uh, keep yourself pure. Um, so w what he's saying here is if you, do, if you are too hasty in bringing on a new elder or a new overseer, whether they're paid or not, so again, we have vocational and non-vocational elders here at the church. All, most churches do if they have this model of leadership. Uh, but if you bring on an elder too quickly and then they sin in leadership, you, the endorsing elder, share in that sin. So he's saying, Timothy, you're partly responsible if you bring an elder on too quickly and they harm the flock and they harm the church. Like, it was partly your, it's partly your sin. So it, this is a really, I mean, this is uh, severe. This is uh, major. This is really a word to all of us in the room here who are existing pastors of Hiawatha or future pastors here who are training and vetting other elders. The Bible says, do not be quick. Uh, I, I have a coach right now who coaches me who talks about this issue, and he, he would actually say, in reference to planting a church, he says, you should never, you, you should not, there should be no reason you would bring on uh, an elder for the first five years. Like, no reason. Uh, and I think he's being a little bit, I think, from my perspective, I think he was being a little bit hyperbolic. But the uh, point is, uh, do not just bring on an elder just because you're lonely. Just don't bring on a new pastor just because you're, you're, feel a little bit overworked. Like there's ways to deal with overwork in different ways. Once you grant power uh, to lead spiritually, it's really hard without a huge mess to take that away and a, a big blow up. And again, I think Paul's saying you share in the sin. Uh, if, if you're too quick to bring someone on, you missed some secret sin of theirs, and all of a sudden you're in a whole heap of trouble. Um, so don't be quick. Be slow. Don't be hasty. Be deliberate. Uh, to reference verse 24, uh, and that understand 
that uh, the sins of some elders in training will be conspicuous, but others will appear later. Uh, same with good work. So um, look at the full character of a potential pastor, the private life, not just the public life. Be patient, be holistic in vetting, um, and then move forward after all of that is, uh, is done. So again, I'm giving you guys kind of the big picture here. Uh, if you are, uh, again, talk to us if you want more. I've never said that so much in the sermon, I don't think, ever. It's just talk to us if you want more information on all these hundreds of things. But, um, but seriously, this is uh, something we have put a lot of thought to. I will say this, um, if you're curious, we look at five big things for elders here. Uh, five big categories or buckets, we call things we just kind of like want things to be thrown into, or categories uh, we look at when we train and vet a new pastor. Uh, and they are this. One, theology, what they believe. We want full theological alignment with our existing elders. Two, philosophy of ministry, uh, which is more of how to do church uh, and how to shape a church culture. All right, so we want full alignment there. Uh, their character, which maybe goes without saying, but that it shouldn't. That, that's, we don't assume that. That's partly what this is about, right, is their character uh, needs to be above reproach, chapter 3 said, and, and all of that. Four, their ministerial qualifications, uh, which would be to say we look for competency and leadership and teaching, primarily, um, as the scriptures uh, teach elsewhere. And then five, we look for fit. So do they fit with the existing team? Uh, is there trust? If there's not trust, uh, we, we might just wait. Or we might say, maybe it's just not for that person. Um, this team, at least the way we see eldership here, it's not a representative board. Uh, some churches operate that way, it's fine. Uh, we don't operate that way. It's not, like, uh, we, it's not a representative board of like, every different type of person in the church. This is a band of brothers who are very similar and who like each other. You know, and all the other things too, but who, who like each other. And, I, and I'll say this, we have seven guys, a lot of you guys don't know us, I realize you're new. Um, I would want to know this, I, I was thinking this morning, I would want to know this if I was going to a church and there was a new church. I would pray for this, I would want to know this. Uh, but this is what we have. By God's grace, we have seven guys who, who are pastors, who lead this church, who love their wives, who love the church, who love Jesus, and who also like each other. And that last part doesn't always happen in churches. Like we have teams of pastors who don't like each other and disaster, right? Or at least, oh, that's so not ideal. And we really want that, you know? And I'm looking at Caleb here and Peter somewhere uh, in the room, uh, but way back there. I don't know if any other guys are here, but we, we, love, we love each other. We love our wives. We love Jesus. We love this church deeply. We love our city we look for all those, but what's maybe not as obvious is we really like each other. We trust each other. We would die for each other. We want to hang out outside of meeting. We look forward to meeting, even if it's midnight, you know, and we're like dying here, you know, like we're just, oh my gosh. We just really like it, you know, at, at the same time. And so um, maybe that goes without saying. Maybe you guys have seen that before. Maybe it's this uh, duh thing. I don't think it is, though. I want you guys to know that, that this, team, this church is led by a team of guys who really like each other, and I hope that never changes. Please pray for us in that. If we lose that, we actually lose quite a bit as, as a community. So fit, fit with the existing team. Trust would be the last, the last uh, category. All right, so there, there's your instruction. Again, a lot of those 
can and do go into church bylaw documents for clarity. We have a lot of this for clarity in our bylaws that all of our members ascribe to and uphold and help kind of govern. It's not just the elders, the, the members kind of, we have a self-governance model here, being Baptistic as a church. Um, a lot of this is just, uh, you know, theolo- or theological principle, healthy principles that we uphold and sort of verbally and, and whatnot, um, unwritten things, but, but we uphold them. To flip the, this thing around, though, to look at it a little bit differently would be to ask us where the, the deeper theology is in this passage. If you look at this passage and you ask the question, like, where is the gospel in it? I mean, one answer, the, the gospel being the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, one answer is it's not there at all, right? Like, like zilch. Like, there, there's no mention of Jesus. There's no mention of the death of Christ or the empty tomb uh, explicitly, right? Like it's not there at all. Um, however, it really is. <laughs> and I want to like walk through this whole passage again, or at least a couple elements, actually one element. We'll spin off it though from a couple of different angles, one big thing. But I think this is where some of the deeper magic is in the letters, to kind of use a, a C.S. Lewis phrase, if you guys uh, know, know the Narnia books. I, I think that there's, there's a deeper magic. And it's not always obvious at first glance but when we start to ask the right question, uh, questions about like, where meaning comes from in the Bible, that is not primarily from the human author, but from God, because he wrote it, and when we come to terms with the fact that the gospel is the central motif in all of Scripture, not just parts of it, even if symbolically or allegorically present, then it starts to get a little bit more clear. Um, but here's how I would answer this question. Like, where is the gospel in this passage, which is a question I always ask myself when preparing sermons, no matter what the genre, no matter how long or short the passage, no matter how conspicuous or inconspicuous, to use Paul's words here differently, uh, the gospel is in the passage. Um, I would say this. This phrase, uh, do, this is where the gospel is. Do not admit a charge against an elder. And so we looked at this physically, right? So in addition, though, to this being a type of intra-church check on pastoral accusation, um, I think it's also on a, on a much different and deeper and more important level, uh, sounds a lot like the gospel. In that, the gospel does not allow charges to be brought against us because in Christ the rules have changed. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace. Grace speaks a better word, to quote the Bible elsewhere. Grace speaks a better word. Uh, Grace actually incapacitates accusation because while it acknowledges sin in the sinner, it saves us apart from the sinner's work. Uh, Grace says to the accuser, the devil, but also you could say to the law, which accuses and incites rather than saves, Grace says to both those things, Yeah, I hear that and totally agree, but this one is not judged on his work, but by another's love. Jesus died in his place. He has found favor with God through him alone. So accuse away. It won't do anything. See, grace says to the law, which accuses and incites, grace says to the devil, the great accuser, I acknowledge everything you're saying. But accuse away, it it has no power. Accuse away, he's been chosen, she has been saved based on love, not based on works. So you have empty things to say, there's no power. You're impotent in your accusations. 
Zechariah 3 is a great example of this. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. It's this heavenly vision Zechariah is getting. It says, then, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord who is pre-incarnate Christ and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So there's the idea, right? The devil is accusing this man. Verse 2. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. All right, big thing to notice. Satan, we know from elsewhere in the Bible, is a liar, right? It's one of his main MOs. He's a liar. But here he's not lying. Here he's telling the truth. Joshua is filthy. He's rightly being accused. He is not a good person. But notice that God doesn't rebuke him. So the fact that God does not rebuke him by saying, liar, actually Joshua isn't filthy. Actually Joshua's a pretty good guy. Back off, Satan. Notice that's not God's response. But instead, his response is, hasn't he been chosen? Hasn't he been plucked from the fire? Haven't I put clean robes on him? Which is to say, Hasn't his righteousness come from outside of him, not from within? Do you see the response? See, in the courtroom of heaven, Jesus doesn't so much defend us based on what we have or have not done as much as he becomes our defense himself. He is our defense. What he does is our defense. The fact that we've been chosen undeservedly is the defense. Do you see the difference? Satan's not lying here. But there is still a right rebuke from the Lord. Back off, Satan. This one has been chosen. Accuse away. Am I doing wrong? Am I, am I, am I sinning by choosing this one I love? And of course the answer is God can do nothing wrong, right? Of course the answer is absolutely not. Christ becomes our defense himself. He becomes our clothing himself. He becomes our shame absolver himself. And so there's no more accusation against us. There's no more accusation against all of you who are in Christ. Though the law exposes your sins, though the devil may accuse, there's no more thing to measure up to. There's no standard to measure up to. No ladder to climb. No shame to feel. No guilt to be weighed down by. Because your ultimate destiny with God is not based on what you do or what you haven't done, but simply the blood of Jesus Christ, simply the fact that he has chosen you undeservedly. Uh, Best definition of grace I've ever heard is one-way love. One-way love. Never, ever, ever two-way. Not one way until you're saved, then it's kind of two-way. You need to love God really well. Always one way, always one way. Saved by grace, defended by grace, clothed by grace, absolved by grace. Accusations deflected by grace simply on the basis that you're not saved by works. If you were at all, then none of this would make sense. Then accusations would have power. How dare you not live that way, Christian? 
How dare you, like, think that? How dare you do that? How dare you not apply this, this passage that well? See, the accusations start to sting, not, just, not towards un, non-Christians, though there's obviously truth there as well, people who are not Christians yet kind of being confronted by this, but I mean towards Christians, right? We still have to ask the great question, though, of how. How does all this happen? It, it's interesting if you look at the life of Christ and what he went through using the language of 1 Timothy 5, did not admit a charge, but a charge was admitted against Jesus, right? When he was on trial. And when he was being crucified, it says in Matthew 27, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so they mocked him. The theology here is the way that Jesus diffuses the devil's accusations, the way that he replaces the command with himself is by being placed under them, by being accused himself, by being born under the law so that we might not be under the law, the book of Romans says. Galatians 3 says Jesus is born under the crushing weight of, of the law so that we might not be under it, the book of Romans says later. He's being accused wrongly, in, in a false sense, but accused nonetheless. In fact, if you look at some of these First Timothy 5 terms, and in, ca- in some cases the inverse of the terms, we can see how they find their fulfillment in Christ, our true elder. He was laid hands upon hastily, prejudged, in our place, rebuked in the presence of all, though he never sinned, and he labored for us on the cross. But through it, he was honored doubly. He undeservedly died, but he deservedly rose. And so, in the end, there's actually an interesting little parenthetical here. Um, a lot of commentators don't really know why it's here. Uh, we put parentheses around him because it it doesn't really fit with the rest of what what he's saying, where Paul says, oh, by the way, drink some wine for your stomach aches. And then he goes back to the elder stuff, you know? It's kind of like, why did he say it there and not, why did he say it at all, I guess, but why did he say it there and and not elsewhere, maybe after the argument's done? Um, We don't don't have all the answers for that, but I I would say, if you ask the, if you don't just ask the physical thing here, and, and I mean, the physical would be to say it's important to care for your health, right? And pastors do suffer. Um, The spiritual would be to say, well, where's the gospel here? Um, I would say, like Paul encouraged Timothy to take some wine for his stomach, for his frequent ailments, for his physical health, so does Jesus encourage us to drink the wine of his blood for our spiritual health. As he says, right before his death, drink this wine, it's my blood, it's the the blood of the New Testament that takes away your frequent ailments, your frequent sins. And your sins are very frequent. My sins are very, very frequent. Much more frequent than than we think. We have frequent ailments, we have much more frequent sins, right? Another way to look at this would be would be to say, uh, especially as it's contrasted with water, uh, would be to say, we need something more than water, which is to say, we're made of water. We need something more than ourselves. We need something 
outside of ourselves, something objective to us, like wine. We, we need a fruit to be tread upon and harmed, like grapes. Uh, we need Jesus to be tread upon and harmed in our place and to spill blood. Uh, and, and then we need to drink deeply of that grace. We need the blood of Jesus Christ. We need an alien solution to ourselves. We need Jesus' death among criminals, not our moral performance. We need Jesus' death among criminals. We need wine, not water. Him, not us. Grace, not works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, we, We pray, God, that it would instill health, continue to instill these principles, health in our church on a leadership level. But for all of us, pastor or not, there's much, much more important things going on here than church governance, uh, and, and that is you. That is through the gospel we have no more accusations. Uh, we stand before you in the courtroom of heaven, uh, bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ, clothed with his grace alone, because goodness comes from outside of us, like a shirt is made outside of us. Grace comes from outside of us, like wine is made outside of us. More than water... We don't draw from within, we drink from without. We need something tread upon. We need something spilt. We need something cut. We need something to die in our place. Uh, Like wine, like grapes are harmed to make the wine, we need Jesus, the true fruit, who hung on the tree of the cross uh, to be tread upon, harmed, split, speared, flogged open, to die in our place. And yet you did. This is the gospel that God, seen us in our, our wicked place, seen us as rightly accused, stood in the way of the devil and said, not him, not her, because she's mine. I've died for her. I love her. I've ch- have I not chosen her? So what is, your, what is your statement? What is your accusation now, Satan? And so, Jesus, we thank you that you have replaced the law with your body, that you were born under the crushing weight of the law, Galatians 4 says, so that we might not be under law anymore as Christians, as Romans 6 says. Um, Something happened there. Uh, You were under, we are not. We're not under the weight of expectation, of commandment following, of rule keeping. Uh, We are simply um, those who partake of the, the clothing of Jesus Christ, the wine of his blood, the bread of his body. Um, Forgive us our sins, Jesus. Please make this rich and um, deserving of our full acceptance. A worthy saying, deserving of our full acceptance uh, this week. Make us new in it. Help us to love much because of how much we have been wrecked and remade by this good news and how much we've been forgiven. In Christ we pray. Amen.